Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. When it comes to Erin Moriarty, my guest today, let's start with the letter A. Erin is an award-winning, acclaimed, admired, esteemed, let's throw in the letter E here, journalist who has spent the past 30-something years at CBS News and since 1990 has been a correspondent for 48 Hours, TV's most popular true crime series. She's covered some of the biggest crime and justice stories, including the death of JonBenet Ramsey, the continuing saga of Robert Durst, the case of Brooke Schuyler Richardson, a young Ohio woman who was tried and acquitted of murdering her newborn. Aaron's reports have also been featured on CBS Sunday Morning, CBS Morning, CBSN, the network's 24-7 digital streaming network. About those awards, Erin is a nine-time Emmy winner. In 2019, she received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Alliance for Women in Media. She was part of the Newtown, Connecticut Elementary School Shooting Squad, which won the 2014 CBS News slash DuPont Columbia Trophy. Erin is also the host of My Life of Crime podcast, which focuses on many of the cases she's covered during her career, false arrests, pending prosecutions, death row trials, spousal abuse, and DNA evidence testing. Erin graduated from Ohio State University Phi Beta Kappa with a degree in behavioral health and then went on to get a law degree from OSU. She began her journalism career working for TV stations in Columbus, Baltimore, Cleveland, and Chicago. So let's meet Erin Moriarty. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Sandy, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I just want to start by saying we have one thing sort of in common. I spent a year at Ohio University, not Ohio State, in Athens. And when I got there and spent September to June, I said, I don't know what I'm doing in Ohio. I got to get out of here. And I wound up doing the total antithesis academically. I went to NYU. So nothing against Ohio University. Um, or Ohio State, but that state was just not for me. Well, Ohio is in a very rural area, even though it's a really booming university and has a great journalism department. Um, it is uh, what I consider is probably not officially Southern Ohio, but I could see it. Ohio State's very different. It's in a, um, you know, the capital right, uh, right. of Ohio. So there's a lot more going on, but I really can't criticize you because I live in New York. <laughs> so, I mean, I consider Ohio my home, but I will say that Ohio and I have kind of, we've kind of grown apart because it's become much more of a gun culture, um, mm-hmm. more conservative uh, right. than, I, than it was when I was growing up. And so um, New York seems to, fit my sensibilities a little bit more, only in the sense that it kind of embraces all people, all different kinds of cultures. So I do like living in New York. I do remember telling people my freshman year, oh, where do you go to college? And I would just say, oh, I go, I go to school in Athens. Let them figure out if it was Greece, Georgia, or Ohio, wasn't my problem. (laughs) I can see that. When you were going to college, as I said, that you got a degree in behavioral health, what did that exactly mean? What did you think you wanted to do? Well, it was actually behavioral sciences. And at that point, it was very broad. It was actually because I was in one of those special programs where you could pick your classes. And I always thought I was going to go to law school. I think I can't remember a time when I wasn't going to go 
even though I was unaware, thanks to my father, um, who was a lawyer and a judge, um, that women weren't even allowed into law schools early on. I mean, or very few were. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very difficult. I didn't know that. And I watched Perry Mason and uh, like so many other people in my generation did and thought that's what I want to do for a living. And so it, it constantly surprises me in a way that I am no longer practicing law, but still working in the field of law and covering legal issues. Right. You couldn't give that up. In its entirety, you no. I kind of fell into the perfect job for me. I wanted to be a litigator. Um, my first job in a law firm, I was writing other people's briefs and not doing anything actually in the courtroom. I would be handed the worst cases possibly that I could do in the courtroom. And so when I fell into journalism, it seemed like the perfect mix that I could still focus on legal issues, but get to perform every day. And that's kind of, you know, there isn't that big of a difference between what a litigator does and what a journalist does. A litigator has a very specific story he or she is telling um, from an advocate point of view. And I'm telling stories every day, hopefully not from a point of view, but telling stories. Right. Well, when you began your law career, you began it in Ohio? In Columbus. It never in occurred Columbus. to me not to live in Ohio. I was, I took the Ohio bar. Uh-huh. Um, I, I took actually a couple of bars. I took the Maryland bar as well, because I thought maybe I would move to the Washington, DC, area. Uh, DC yeah. Maryland mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. I had this, you know, fantasy of living in Annapolis, uh, you know, on the water and uh, practicing law in two states. Um, and so that's all I thought about doing. Um, but I did want to do litigation and I mean, I'm old enough. Um, obviously I've been at CBS news for 35 years and I practiced law way before that I'm old enough at a time that although law schools then did take women, Columbus, Ohio was not really ready for female Mm -hmm. litigators. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think had I gone to law school later or if I were younger and started Later, I still would be a lawyer. But at the time, I was frustrated by what I thought were limitations. And so when I kind of fell into journalism and got an offer to do uh, kind of legal type of stories, um, my first real place was Baltimore. I did some in Columbus, but my first place was Baltimore. It seemed like a perfect fit. Well, what do you mean that you fell into it? I I totally fell into it. I um, was practicing law in Columbus and I was frustrated by the fact that I couldn't join the clubs that they wouldn't allow women to join on their own. The clubs that lawyers, the male lawyers, all I was the only woman in my law firm and all of them belonged to the Columbus Athletic Club, which would not accept me. And a lot gets done in those places. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Yes, you need to. You need to be able to take your clients there. I mean, you know, there's this image also of um, that you're presenting as a lawyer. So your clients trust you and, and think you're successful. And, you know, you can't take somebody just to the diner because nobody else will allow you to join. Right. But I was frustrated. And I thought that I, they were going to start a television program. And I grew up in Columbus. And I thought, you know, if I could get on television, um, people would get to know me. And maybe I would rainmake. People would say, oh, that's a lawyer. I know her. It was a really stupid idea at the time. But, you know, when you're 26, 27 years of age, 
It well, makes the world sense. can kind of be your oyster. You can, you know, yes. you can just sort of say, fuck this, I'm going to try it, you know? Yeah, well, I thought I'd do both. Um, and then when I started doing television, I fell in love with it. It was, you know, writing stories all the time, moving from issue to issue. When you're practicing law, sometimes you'll work a year on a case or longer. Some people work years if it's an antitrust case or something like that. And, um it made perfect sense for me to, to really tell stories in a different way. And I, you know, I got to move around. I moved from Columbus to Baltimore, then to Cleveland, then to Chicago, and then finally to New York. And, um, oh, you know, in Maryland is where I took the Maryland bar. And I, I just found it was perfectly suited to whom I was. But you know what the irony is about that? So here you are kind of marginalized as a female while you're in Columbus, you know, and then you come to Baltimore and you eventually go in front of the camera, but that must, that's a complete 180 than what you were used to, you know, about, about somebody taking, and I use the term in quotes, taking a chance on you. That's an interesting point. To me, it just was the most natural thing to do. Um, it really was. And Boy, to be in front of a camera, Aaron. To be in front of a camera. Yeah, you know, I, I, yes. Okay. I think it's harder than people realize. I mean, I didn't realize how tough it was to present the way you wanted to. Um, but think about it. When you're going to be a litigator, you're going to be presenting, and maybe there's not a camera there, but there's even a tougher audience, the jury, and that's what I always wanted to do. So. To me, there really wasn't a difference. There was just a different point I was trying to make. Um, In in trying to convince a jury, you are telling a story one way. And and as a correspondent, you hope you're kind of balancing when it's necessary. Or when I do wrongful convictions and my reporting indicates one way, then I'm telling the story the way I believe it to be. but it really prepared me for being a journalist because I knew I knew what advocacy was. And mm-hmm. so it's it's very easy to be uh, convinced by a really good lawyer in an interview. But if you know exactly what that person is doing, you always have in the back of the mind, this is a defense attorney and he is trying to sell me on his on his case. Right. And same with prosecutors. And you know, of course I go off on tangents, but prosecutors are the ones we most have to question, and many journalists don't. And it is the most important thing we can do in this day and age because they make mistakes. Um, We now know that. We know there are innocent people in prison. And we have to question prosecutors as much as we question defense attorneys. But that isn't always the case with journalists. Your first stint at a television station that you were going to do crime stories? No, no. Really what really what convinced me that I needed to go into that specifically. Now, early on, when I was doing 48 Hours, what I just loved was that we got to do in-depth, big issues uh, before other people were doing it. When 48 Hours started, we would do um, the issue of AIDS in a conservative county. And what did that mean? And, you know, so I loved that. But what really, I hate to say, I've got to give credit to O.J. Simpson. Um, O.J. Simpson is the reason why I started covering crime, because that was the trial where prosecutors first started using DNA. And mm-hmm. I was forced to learn a lot about DNA. And then from then on, we started realizing that's when it became much clearer 
how many times people were wrongfully convicted because you started having people who confessed to crimes in a very convincing way that later would be exonerated based on DNA. So you're like, okay, why? Why is somebody confessing to something he or she didn't do? Mm. And and then you start seeing coercive uh, um, in- interrogations. The read uh, method that would get people, particularly young, vulnerable people um, or people with um, alcohol and drug issues to confess to something they didn't do. And then you started realize how, realizing how many times eyewitnesses uh, made mistakes. Mm-hmm. And when you started looking into it, you realized that eyewitnesses make mistakes far more often than we ever realized and pick the wrong person, even when they're absolutely sure, even when a woman has been raped and saw her rapist, she might identify the wrong person. Um, and so the idea that I could be on the cutting edge of an area and that I really feel that I feel maybe I'm giving myself and other reporters who do this too much credit, but I started, I would say in the late 1990s, because it was 96, the trial. So I started on these wrongful convictions and pushing for post-conviction DNA and all this to see what would happen. When I first started, and I would do stories on people who, who confessed, I would get letters, then later emails from people saying, you know, that person's guilty. You would never get me to confess. But then flash, you know, forward to, mm-hmm. I think it was 2015, when I did a story of a young woman who was accused of uh, harming a baby in her care. Um, when they made a mistake on the evidence, the uh, medical examiner totally botched the investigation, but she did confess after nine hours of interrogation. Yeah, right. And mm-hmm. what I found from my audience was, I think she's innocent. I think maybe that was coerced because you're showing me evidence that makes me question that prosecution. So I feel that we contributed to a change in the in the public's view of convicted people. And I have stayed on that as much as I can. Yes. Your most recent one was the gentleman, Mr. Strickland, correct? Um, I just saw that piece who was what? He's in his early 60s, right? 62. In Missouri. Yep. And was a teenager. When he, he was, was, yeah, he's 18, 19. Um, you know, he was hanging out with the wrong people. He knew people who were involved in a shooting and it was a horrible crime. So you have to understand why police were rushing to try to grab the killers of four young people. And they were killed in a terrible way. They were tied up and then shot in the head over a $300 gambling, you know, discrepancy. And I mean, it just, but... They had evidence early on, a year after he was convicted, that they probably convicted the wrong guy. And I'm talking about 1979, and they got more evidence in 1981, and they got more evidence in 1998. And so finally, in 2018, the prosecutor, a wonderful prosecutor by the name of Jean Peters Baker, started to reinvestigate the case as part of her conviction integrity unit and determined that he was factually innocent, truly innocent, actually innocent. But the attorney general's office, um, which according to the legal experts I've spoken to in Missouri, uh, 
which has never over the years admitted to making a mistake in a conviction, is fighting this. And so Kevin Strickland is on collateral damage, and there's a, a very similar case going on with Lamar Johnson, um, a, a case that happened in St. Louis. So a lot of this is going on in Missouri. Midwest, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's an mm-hmm. important issue because you don't want you don't want to have prosecutors hesitate to investigate these cases. Um, the prosecutors are the best people to analyze uh, past convictions and determine if there is enough evidence to indicate that they got the wrong person in. And, and, and that they admit, admit that they made a mistake or a mistake was made. And you know how often these inmates are Black. You know, I just, yeah. I, you know, when people tell me that racism isn't part oh, of that's this. that's bullshit. Yeah. Of course it is. And it may not be overt, but it works in very subtle ways, like having an all-white jury. There's just so many ways. And now that's um, not so subtle. <laughs> no, you're jury. right. Well, but I'm yeah. not saying that an all-white jury cannot um judge a black man properly. Right. 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 But but you at least, you know, uh, there was an effort in that second trial because he was tried twice. The first time it was a hung jury. Um, there was an effort to keep out black jurors. And uh, so that is racist when you're making that overt effort. You know, watching, watching that piece, um, I was so struck. And it's not the first time it's that I haven't that I've seen this that this man didn't appear to have a bitter bone in his body. He wasn't hysterical. He wasn't seemingly angry. I was really struck by that. Now, that maybe that's not what you experienced with him. And you know, to me, he has every right to be ranting and raving. His entire life was spent behind bars when he shouldn't have been there. But Sandy, you know what I'm finding? I'm finding that a lot. I did um, for 22 years. I'm still working on it a bit. I've worked on the case of Crosley Green. Crosley Green was put on death row for 10 years for a murder that I believe was committed by the victim's girlfriend, both white. She indicated, and um, the lawyers, I mean, the defense lawyers have always asserted this, that um, that she accidentally or on purpose shot her boyfriend and then said a black guy did it. And it was in Florida and they arrested charge and put on death row a black man, Crosley Green, who was, he wasn't an angel. He was selling drugs in the area. He's a very good man, though. I've got to tell you, I've gotten to know him very well over 22 years. And um, he's not bitter either. And what I fear, you know, I will ask him sometimes, why why don't you appear to be angry? Are you just doing this for the TV cameras? Are you just doing this for me? Right. And I think this is a horrible thing to say that while what we as a white person might say, this couldn't happen to me. How dare this happen to me? I fear that there's a little bit on the part of a young black man growing up that I can be wrongfully convicted. I I can be a victim of right. the system and nobody's going to come rescue me. And I, Kevin so much wants to get out. Um, but I, I sense more of a fear he never will, this resignation or um, depression as opposed to bitterness. And the benefit of doing these stories time after time is that if these individuals have seen you or heard of you, they know you're going to be open to their story. 
I mean, I do a lot of people who are guilty too. So I don't want to be viewed as just someone who does wrongfully convicted. But I know that I hope that when I interview people that they know I'm very open to listening to their story. And Kevin really was relaxed with me. It's the second time I've interviewed him. Well, that was very and, obvious. Yeah. And you want that because I also had to ask him tough questions. While some of those questions did not make it on the air for time reasons, they are there where um, he did sell, not, I use the word sell, he gave the um, sh- one of the shooters shell casing several weeks before. And that is, you know, that doesn't look good, but he had, he says, and didn't hesitate to answer my questions, even though I really pressed him on it, that he had no idea what this guy was going to do with shell casing. He had a, he had been given a uh, rifle in return for damage that someone had done to his car. And and Kevin had extra shell casings and gave it. And he makes no bones about it. And his story has never changed since 1978. So um, you have to be able to ask all those tough questions too and raise the evidence that made police look at him in the first place. I think what you do seriously is a public service. But having said that, I want to know, was that the bulk of what your desire was when you first got into television reporting? Was it crime and trials? No, no, it was storytelling because you know I do a lot of Sunday morning pieces. Right, right. And I, I always sometimes world me. I say I am addicted to CBS Sunday morning. Anyway, yeah. well, and I am too, as a viewer and also oh, a person who likes to work on the show. I don't tape it, and people know. Do not call me between 9 and 10.30 because I will not take your call. But so you please. also want to watch Nancy Giles. That's why. Let's be honest. Well, Nancy that's Giles is uh, part of our Sunday morning. That's right. That's right. And um, no, I, I sometimes you know, get a little tired when people just assume on Sunday they have to ask me to do the legal issues. Right. But right. Uh, because I want to do music like everybody else or stars, although I'm not mm-hmm. as good with celebrities. Um, but you know, I, even in this past year, I did, um, a story on the elections and voting and we did it pretty early predicting the kind of problems that could happen because of, uh, write-in votes and, uh, mail-in votes, sorry. And, um, I did the death of RBG, you know, mm, um, Ruth Bader uh, Ginsburg right. and I did Hard Island where they were burying People who didn't have money in New York, one of the largest potters, uh, burial oh, potter's field. Oh, in the yeah. country. Yes. yes, yes. And um, and I did the the series Mrs. America that looked back on the uh, fight for the ERA back in the 1970s. And so um, I still just love storytelling. Right now, I'm working on a piece. Um, when I stop talking with you, I'll go back to my script that I'm trying to write about art authentication, um, how difficult it is now if you come across what you think is maybe not a masterpiece, but a genuine uh, piece of art done by a known artist, how difficult it is to prove to get anyone to authenticate it because of litigations and uh, what it could cost you to try to do it. And um, so I, I try just to do good stories. So they're eclectic and versatile. I try to be, try to be, but 
if there's a good wrongful conviction, you know, sometimes I just run into them. I'm right now working on an hour for 48 hours. When I read everything and read the trial, I believed the defendant was definitely guilty, but I knew his entire family, he was convicted of killing his wife, that even his mother-in-law and his kids all believed he was innocent and a very, very good defense uh, team. Um, Jerry Buting and his wife, Kathleen Stalling, who were the original lawyers on Stephen Avery, they took the case because they believed in him. So I'm like, okay, why would they do this? And sure enough, the more I worked on it, I realized, okay, you know, it's not quite the way the prosecutor tells the story. And maybe this guy is innocent. Mm. And so I'm happy to take kind of a contrary view on a case. Um, but based totally on the evidence, not on anything else, but on evidence that the jury didn't know about. Um, and, and clearly the courts agree because five years after this man was convicted, he got an evidentiary hearing by the same trial lawyer. And that is so highly unusual. So, hey, it's fun. The idea that I can, you know, raise make people look at a case in a different way. Wow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a gift. What about the, the contrast of something very intense as that? And I use this word so much in quotes versus something not frivolous, but fun and, and, and engaging you and us in a different way. How do you feel about doing those stories? And have you done a lot of them? Sadly, I fear that, um, I have lost my ability to be too frivolous. I think mm -hmm. two things. I mm -hmm. don't think viewers see me as frivolous. And sometimes, I mean, I once got heat because I was being sarcastic in a piece, joking about sign, and they thought I was being serious because I'm so serious about everything. And, <laughs> um, but um, to give you an example, like I have a running joke with my son who lives in L.A., that you can't have a conversation with me without ending up talking about murder. And I'm trying <laughs> so hard not to, but almost always that's where the conversation goes. And um, so I may have lost my ability to really do frivolous stories the way Nancy Giles can, or um, I'm trying to think Steve Hartman, or you know, people who have not gotten sucked into the deeper, darker side of human nature. Mm -hmm. Well, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. What's the ratio of you you're being assigned and you suggesting stories? Oh, How does that I work? would say, because I've been there so long, I would say, yeah, 75% I push for or, you know, say I want to do, you know, it might have been picked and I'll go, no, that's what I'll do. Here's another story. Like the Kevin Strickland totally came from me. Um, as the Crosley Green story totally came from me. Those those cases are all. But um, I was originally asked to do the uh, case in lacrosse that I just told you about where the guy may be innocent. And I took it because I knew the lawyers working on it. And then I kind of turned it into something that we weren't expecting. Mm. And so I would say 75, 25. Gotcha. Three quarters, I would say, come from me or... I push to get, you know, sometimes they're big stories that I want to do it. And, you know, so sometimes it's that. But um, I try to do my own stories because I think 
sometimes the the networks look like they're only covering the same things. And I want I don't want to do something that I see somewhere else. I'd like to be first on a story. What comes to you when you think about what you've been doing for these 30 plus years? Well, you know, today I just got an email from a woman and that to me, she kind of captured why I do it. She was just a kid, but her sister was brutally murdered along with three other kids in Austin, Texas. And her life changed forever for that. And she has gone through counseling. She's, you know, she's in her early forties now. The case is now 30 years old. And, um, When I sat down with her, because I knew so much about the case, I was on it from the beginning. I knew her mother. Um, I knew so much. She sent me an email this morning saying that it was so, you know, she spends all her time not trusting people, that it was wonderful to feel known, is what she said. You, She goes, you knew so much about the case. You, You knew what I'd been through. You let me talk about what I wanted to talk about and didn't push me when I didn't want to talk about things. And she said, you made me feel known. She said, um, I keep thinking about the interview. Well, you know, that's, it's the, it's not the murders or the deaths I think about when I'm covering. It's always the amazing people you meet on it. Um, it's a humanity, that, isn't it? It aren't, but people who are pushed to, their limits and somehow either survive or even go beyond surviving, do good. And, um, and so that, I think, when I look back on my career, the idea that I may have either helped someone get out of prison by highlighting their case so somebody's life has changed because of a story or something simple like this, that um, Crosley Green, whom, whom I mentioned earlier, the man, he got out in April. His case is still pending um, because the state of Florida, the attorney general's office, is fighting the federal court's decision to overturn um, Crosley's conviction. But he's out because judges are now seeing all the evidence that indicates that he is likely innocent. But it was his son who said to me in an interview that. He believed his father was guilty till he saw my hour. And oh, wow. then he said, oh, yeah, wow. he was describing it. He went, I saw your show and I went, whoa, that's what happened. Oh, I just and got so, goosebumps, really. I just yeah, really that got is what That is what I hope my career is made of. Well, the gaining of trust is just so huge, you know. I, I can't imagine, seriously, as you look back and see the potency yeah, I'm deifying you, Aaron, but I think it's legitimate, you know? Of oh, I what don't think it, that. But I lucked out into going into a field that I knew something about. Well, that, that you're I good at. I mean, nobody suffers fools gladly. Well, I just was lucky, and I think it was a gift that I've been at CBS, and so people trust you to a certain extent. I mean, if I pick one wrong case, though, trust me, I'm always thinking that if I focus on a case and that individual, there's new evidence that indicates this person was a killer, right. is a killer, you know, my, <laughs> my, you know, career is over. I got gotcha. you. But, I- um, you know, so there's always that risk because nobody knows these cases sometimes are 30 years old, 35 years old. Um, you weren't back there at the time, but usually, um, you can point out not only that the person didn't get a fair trial, but 
is actually innocent. And those are the cases I do try to focus on. The ones that are a little murkier, I might do, but I will never do as a wrongful conviction. I will just raise as an interesting story. Right. Um, you Questions. know, this happened back then and maybe we'll never know. And in fact, the lacrosse case where I'm talking about where the man may be innocent, we won't know. There's no question the defendant's own words are really the most damaging evidence against him. And so not the evidence. The evidence I'm finding supports that he might be innocent. But he said a lot of strange things to investigators. And and so I don't know if we'll ever know if he's truly innocent. Is there some story that has really moved you lately that you want to do that you're, you know, kind of chomping at the bit about? I think every story I run into, I love. Um, Right now, I want to follow the Kevin Strickland and the Lamar Johnson case, the other individual facing the same thing. As far as I can take it, I want to see them get out. Um, I had been watching Lamar Johnson's case for several years before I started doing the story itself. I love all these stories. I love mm. the It's Gabby like picking Petito your favorite story. child, huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love, I didn't do the Gabby Petito story, but I'm like everyone in America fascinated with that couple that seemed to be so, so normal. Mm. And, um, you know, the issue of domestic abuse and dysfunction within relationships is something that comes back over and over again in my over stories. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's a case, we'll probably do the trial of, of Amy Harwick, who I know I would have loved. I didn't get to meet her. She was a young woman in LA. Um, she was a psycho- psychologist and she would counsel women who have been abused by men or who were in abusive um, careers, like women who worked as sex workers. And she would, she really devoted her life to really um, women at risk. And then she had a boyfriend who couldn't get over her and he allegedly killed her. Um, That was early, a year ago in February. He killed her on Valentine's Day, allegedly, because he hasn't been convicted. And, um, And that story, I definitely want to do the trial. It doesn't bring her back, but it's such a good reminder that even people who know so much about the dynamics in relationships can fall victim. And she was such a beloved person, a good friend. Um, I, I didn't hear one person with anything negative to negative. say about mm-hmm. And I wish I'd known her, but at least I can give her her image and her name um some kind of lasting resonance Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. some value if she saves other women from avoiding bad relationships. When you're doing a story like Kevin Strickland, for example, and you have to be on the road because he's in prison in Missouri, what's the average time that you spend on a story? Well, um, I try not to spend too much time for various reasons on the road at one point. I have to keep coming back. I have issues in... um, at home that mm-hmm. I still am responsible for. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that's difficult. But um, on the Kevin Strickland case, I did a story for Sunday morning in July. And then um, I did another one this week and he may or may not have a hearing in early November and I will continue that. So I will continue that story as long as there's a show that is interested in letting me report. 
on the Crosley Green over the years, 22 years. Um, I worked on that case um, and would like one last thing when the um, 11th Circuit uh, Federal Court, Appellate Court rules in his favor, I'm hoping, because it's gone on so long. But then sometimes like um, on the Amy Harwood case that I just talked about, I turned around that story initially with a lot of producers, a lot of help in two weeks. So it just depends, you know, on what's going on. You know, and also your recognition for being involved with the Newtown incident, how they get inside your DNA. In all honesty, I did not stay on the story as long as other reporters. What happened was, and and this is actually true of 9-11, I could not continue because I was too emotional during Mm -hmm. the Newtown. Mm -hmm. I could not, I think I hit my Mm -hmm. limit of, children getting killed for no reason and the parents, the suffering of parents and I'm a parent. And so, um, that, and also nine 11, which was, um, an embarrassing thing to admit. I was the very first week I was assigned to do all the, uh, deaths and funerals of firemen. And the last story I did in New York city was one that I cried all through the interview and the family did not. And so, so because I just, I had done so many firemen and their family and I just hit my limit. So I went to Germany instead and did the investigation into where the, the whole plot started and, you know, what happened there so that I could remove myself emotionally from the deaths and just focus on the police investigation. And so um, when you ask, does it get in your DNA? Absolutely. And when I asked on the uh, Newtown uh, case, and I actually went to my executive producer and said, I can't do it anymore. She didn't even question it. She just said, when Aaron says she can't do it. And I did it recently on a 48 hours. Um, Another reporter decided to do it, but I could not do it. Um, We did run the hour. They didn't drop the story. I wasn't sure we should have done it, but that's not my decision, but I did get off it where a young woman was murdered live on the internet by she had um, mental issues and the boyfriend, even though he has not been uh, determined to be meant, you know, crazy, you know, yeah, he was considered to be competent. Um, He was definitely a um, mentally challenged young man. And I just felt that putting this on television um, was just something I could do. She was mm-hmm. a young woman. I couldn't do it. And mm-hmm. uh, so I did get off that. So I, I think I know my limits. Um, I, it does seep into your DNA. It does, as I said earlier, you know, I think people associate me with murder. I end up, my conversation is always laced with murders. <laughs> but I know when I have to stop. Mm-hmm. But you see, but you're not going to be stopping I'm generically for a while, right? You love what you do. I love what I do. And I'm worried no one else, you know, this will, that, this is arrogance. And I don't mean it that way, but I'm worried other people won't do it. Um, that's not arrogance. That's fact. No, I do worry because, you know, I love these cases and I love pointing out where the system works and where it really fails. And yes. I don't know if other people 
think that is news or think that's as important. And right now I have shows that will let me put it on the air. And why wouldn't I then? Um, so I don't want to quit. Um, but I'm, you know, aging. I just hope I don't age out. I'm older than women were a generation ago. Both, let's be honest, both in law school and on television. And so I know that I'm part of this um, this huge generation of women who have pushed the limits. And, um, and that's great. But you don't know. It is television. And does somebody want an aging woman on television? You hope for what I do. Why not? You know, you just need experience. But you don't know. You should be the one who is saying, you know what? Stick a fork in me because I'm done. I've, I've had this amazing, wonderful career, and now I don't want to do it anymore, as, a, as opposed to somebody saying to you, thank you so much, but we're moving along. You know, we're moving you on. You know, it's a... That happens. A I know what happens. You know, when I first came to CBS, um, Jeffrey Tubin's mother was a correspondent <laughs> at CBS News. I don't quite know exactly what happened, but I know she left a very bitter woman. I don't know whether they asked her to go or whether they cut her pay. Um, and that's right when I first came. And I remember saying to a producer I work with regularly, don't let me be like that. We know this could happen in this business. Right. Um, and, you know, sadly for her, but lucky for me, we are given more time as women. We're allowed to age more on television. There are women older than I am right now on television. And what a wonderful thing. And, and then sadly, men are being held in some ways the same standard. You know, you lose all your hair. Uh, you might not get to be an anchor, you know. Um, so it's, it is a visual business. But um, it does seem I lucked out to be of a generation that is now allowed to age on air as long as we still work as hard as anybody else. Right, right. So if you could say one or two things about your career as you look back on it, what would you tell me? I think a lot of people probably say this, but I am maybe the luckiest person that I know to get a career that was so suited to my strengths and also my weaknesses. And that I hope that journalists are able to do what I've been able to do and what other people, because we're such an important voice right now. We're human beings, no question. We're human beings and we make mistakes and we carry our biases with us. But, um, but a society without people to point out, imagine if you lived in a country where you couldn't criticize the attorney general in Missouri for what he was doing. For sure. There are a lot of places yeah. where you couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not only grateful for being able to do these stories, but that we live in a place that allows it and, and that that doesn't change. Right. You know, it's funny because we are of a similar age. I'm slightly older than you are. And as I'm looking at what's going on in the world today, uh, you know, there's a part, I don't want to get political, but there's a part of me, I did this, you know, when it, uh, talking about Texas, for example, and, and a woman's right to choose. I stutter because I can't believe in 2021 where we are when I know where we I were. I agree 70s. with you. You know, when I first went to law school and, um, they had to have a quota to get women in. And so initially, 
um, when I started, I would run into young men going, well, I could have gone to law school, but some woman took my place. Uh, and yeah. I would always like, how dare you? You were, you know, you guys were taking up all the places. Now we're finally getting some. I, I thought that was the late seventies, eighties. And the idea that women today, 2021, you know, not only just that you can't make a decision for your own life, right or wrong, you have to live with it. But two, the idea that this Texas law, you turn in your neighbor, that sounds like something. I mean, I've covered uh, the political situation in Cuba twice. That's what was happening in Cuba. The idea that's happening here. So I don't think there's ever been a more important time for journalism. But this is what I've always worried about, that I worry that people want to be on TV, want to be anchors you know, want that wonderful lifestyle because um, it pays decently and you're recognized. But the real job of journalism is dirty. You know, you're staying in not such great hotels, what I call socks on hotels. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, um, but that's the kind of job and journalism that makes your heart sing, that makes you feel like I'm doing something Absolutely. valuable in my life. Absolutely. And and truthfully, not to get put too heavy a point on it, but that really is when people talk about being happy, people can't be happy all the time. But if you're doing something that makes you feel you're changing people's lives or doing something good, that's that's happiness. Erin, what a perfect way to end. I could talk to you forever. I am so grateful that you and I were able to have this conversation. Um, I think it's fairly evident that I'm a huge fan and uh, I've seen- You're sweet. Many, You're very sweet. Thank well, you. Well, sweet, I don't know about, but I mean, you know, <laughs> pieces. and I really want to thank you so much for sharing your life and your passion with us. It's been absolutely fascinating. Well, it's been fun being with you. Thanks so much, Sandy. It's just been a joy. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.